Let's pray together. Our God, you are our maker, the maker of all things. You hold the universe in the palm of your hands. You hold all of time in your hands. You are eternal and unchanging. You are holy. We marvel that you would look upon the likes of us and be gracious. We're so thankful that we could contemplate together as a church your power, your glory, and your goodness to us in a cross, an empty tomb, power over death. And we pray now as we look to your word that you would grant a hearing. Oh God, would we have soft hearts ready to hear, hands eager to serve, minds surrendered to you, a will that belongs all to you. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, in power, use your word this morning. Transform us. Conform us in greater measure to the image of your Son. Make us useful. God, I pray this morning that you would cultivate in us a a longing to be with you because of your greatness and your goodness. And may we be eager, looking forward to your return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a delight to be with you. Truly an honor to be here. I've really enjoyed reconnecting with some friends and meeting many of you for the first time. And I'm so thankful for your pastor. Pastor Brian is a friend. He is a shepherd who has cared for my soul. I'm so thankful for him as a friend, and I'm a little bit envious for you that you get to have him all the time. Uh, It truly is an honor to be here and to preach where he normally does. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We'll be looking at this morning at the text that we read a few moments ago. I want you to imagine a normal day, the usual routine in the morning for you. Maybe you pour yourself a bowl of cornflakes and make a cup of coffee. You tie your shoes, you get dressed, you leave your house, and maybe you go to school or to work or you meet with friends. Wherever you end up, A message arrives for you, perhaps a text message, and it's simply an announcement. And the announcement is, you are hereby declared a citizen of a country you've never heard of. You sit down at your desk, you do a Google search, you find Wikipedia, and you look up this far-off land, and, and you discover that this land of which you've just been declared a citizen is idyllic. It has a perfect climate. Perfect weather, perfect topography. Of course, it has snow-capped mountains and warm beaches. It doesn't have bad things in this land. There are no mosquitoes and there is no mayonnaise. And as you do your research, you discover something very unique about this country. It, It is governed in an absolute monarchy. There is a king who always gets his way, but his way is good. And he has his citizens' best interest in his heart. 
and he governs absolutely and perfectly. Such an announcement would change your day. It would alter the way you eat your cornflakes and tie your shoes. It would change the way you walk into your cubicle or that classroom. It would change the way you make friends, find a spouse, choose a career. Such an announcement would alter your identity. It would alter the way you live. And what I've just described, Christian, is no parable. It's no tall tale. It is actually your story. If you are in Christ, you have already been declared a citizen of a place you've never been. Your home is in heaven, and you have been qualified to be there. It really is too good to be true, and yet it is your reality. My hope this morning via Philippians 3 is to make you homesick for your permanent residence. That's the title of this morning's message. As we look at Philippians 3, I want to give you three reminders that provoke that homesickness. Let's read our text together, Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. God writes through the Apostle Paul, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by His working through which He is able to even subject all things to Himself. This passage begins with a little word at the beginning of verse 20, for... Do you see it there? It's a, a conjunction that is connecting verses 20 and 21 to what came before. And this conjunction presents a contrast. And the contrast is to a group of men described by Paul, beginning in verse 17. Paul says, brothers, join in following my example and look for those who walk according to the pattern you have in us, for many walk, of whom I've often told you and now tell you even weeping, They are enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their appetite. Their glory is in their shame. They set their thoughts on earthly things. Our citizenship, by contrast, is in heaven. Paul here is describing a group of people that he says don't follow them. And he begins in verse 17 by saying, follow in my example. And then, And you know that Paul is writing this letter to the church at Philippi from prison. It's an interesting appeal. Follow my example, says Paul, who is following Christ and suffering for it. Paul is enjoining the Philippian believers to suffer in this life along with him. And don't follow those other guys, beginning in verse 18. I believe the men described here in verses 18 and 19 are professing Christians that the Philippian believers would be familiar with. Perhaps they were teachers. Perhaps they had some influence in the church. But they were known. And I believe that they are professing believers rather than those outside the church because they are described in verse 18 as walking. Many walk. Paul here is not describing the world outside the church. He's describing those who are posing as Christians 
And yet Paul describes them through tears. I've often told you about them, and I now tell you even weeping. And he says they are enemies of the cross of Christ. This is an interesting insight into the character of these people who would have some influence in the church at Philippi. They're not enemies of Jesus, according to this text. It seems that they name Jesus, and they're happy to do that, but they are particularly said to be enemies of the cross of Christ. When Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, he must daily take up his cross and follow me. This is shorthand for saying they are enemies of the suffering of discipleship. They are enemies of the suffering that goes along with the pursuit of holiness. They are enemies of the kind of suffering that goes along with being faithful to Christ. We discover that these posers who are opposing the cross of Christ are temporal-minded. Look at verse 19. Their end is destruction. So the reality of these people is they are not inheritors of eternal life. Paul says their God is their stomach or their God is their appetite. That is, what, whatever they see, they want, and whatever they want, they just go get. And this is an interesting insight into what truly rules the heart. Someone can name Christ externally, but be worshiping other than Christ. And whatever you are ruled by effectively is your idol or your God. In this case, their God is their appetites. I see it, I want it, I go get it. That's the altar at which they worship. And he says they are thinking on earthly things. This temporal mindedness means that even the things that are shameful have become their glory. They glory in their shame. That is, they actually boast in the kinds of things that those following Christ closely would be ashamed of. And maybe you know people like this, people that profess to know Christ and simultaneously say, Yeah, but I also dabble in the world. I enjoy these things. And people can talk about liberties as a boast or even sinful things as a boast. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but I do these things. They're not ashamed of the things they should be ashamed of. They live a worldly carpe diem, a seize the day, the the kind of thing that says eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. I believe they have flipped Philippians 1.21 on its head. Philippians 1.21, Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And these professing Christians have turned it around and they said, Well, yes, for me to die is Christ. I got my get out of hell free card. I, I professed faith. I prayed a prayer. I, I'm in Jesus. But to live is gain. And they're seeking out their best life now. This is their mantra. How can I get what I want out of the world and still have some safety by having a, the name of Christian? Paul says, don't follow them. Don't follow their example. This is the import of the four at the beginning of verse 20. Follow my example, says Paul. Don't follow those guys. Why? For our citizenship is in heaven. This first reminder that we need to provoke our homesickness for our permanent residence is that we belong to heaven. 
Our citizenship is there. It's a contrast to the earthly-minded people that Paul warns the Philippians about. Essentially, Paul says here, you are a citizen of a place you've never been. In fact, the only place you've ever known is not where you belong. In 49 BC, all Italians were declared Roman citizens. About 100 years later, in 47 AD, it is said that only 9% of people in the Roman Empire were citizens. So the, the Roman Empire grew and expanded, but citizenship was a precious commodity. You were born into it, or it was conferred on you for some award, or you could pay massive sums to be a citizen. Philippi was a colony city of Rome. It was 600 miles away on the Aegean Sea in Greece. And the Roman Empire populated the city of Philippi with veterans of the Roman Wars. So soldiers that had served Rome well were given this city, and the original inhabitants of Philippi were removed from their homes, and these veterans got their homes and their stuff, and Rome said, this is now yours, this is a Roman colony, and all of you have citizenship. It was a remarkable privilege uh, earned through warfare. And so Philippi, though 600 miles away from Rome, became known as a little Rome because it's architecture was Roman. Its jurisprudence was Roman. It had Roman values and a Roman worldview. It did the things that Rome did. In fact, most of the original citizens of Philippi had never even been to Rome, and yet they lived like Rome in this far-off place. The citizenship was more than a status. It was a way of life. And for Christians at Philippi to hear, your citizenship is in heaven, they would have resonated with the reality, you are a registered citizen of a place you've never been, and yet the values of that place govern your life here. The perspectives of that place govern your life here. And, and just as a Roman soldier would dream about the glories of Rome, a citizen of heaven ought to be looking forward to going home. Notice what Paul says here, your citizenship is in heaven, present tense. He doesn't say your citizenship will be in heaven. He says it is presently. And the impact of that is significant. It's like what Paul says in Ephesians 2.6, you are already seated in the heavenly places. Or Colossians 1.13, you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. This is a, a reality that is already true of us, though we're not home. And so our life is to be ruled by the priorities of heaven, by the passions of heaven. The governance of heaven is to be the rule of our lives. And citizenship in heaven is by birth. It's by birth. Now, nobody gets in by heredity. My, my parents are Christians, therefore I'm a Christian. I was born in Texas, so I'm a Christian. No, you, you get in by new birth. You were not qualified to be in in your natural state. Nobody was born a Christian. No one was born a citizen of heaven. You must be born again. And citizenship in that place is also by blood. Again, not heredity, but by another's blood, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, spilled at the cross to purchase our citizenship. 
See, Christianity is not just a, a different way of life. It's not joining a club and imbibing their morals or, or, or the rules that they follow. Rather, being a Christian is a new identity wrought by God's supernatural power to make you new, to make you born again, to change your nature internally, and then to have heaven's priorities govern your life. Are you homesick for your permanent residence? Do you walk through life missing heaven? Never been there. Can't wait. If you've never felt that, it, perhaps you haven't had a change of citizenship yet. If you're not longing for heaven, if you're not governed by heaven's priorities, that's an appropriate time for introspection. Do I belong to heaven? Am I a citizen? There's a second reminder that will push us to homesickness for our permanent residence. It's found in the second part of verse 20. Paul writes, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, our salvation is talked about as a future reality. And in the New Testament, you see a number of different ways salvation is described. Past, present, and future. It can be said of us that we were saved. The New Testament also describes Christians as being saved. And, and sometimes the New Testament describes Christians as those who will be saved. And this future rescue is exactly what Paul is talking about here. There is a, a salvation coming that we look to Jesus for. And we eagerly await it. The word to wait here is a word that indicates waiting in eager expectation. It's a word that's used eight times in the New Testament, and every time it's used, it's used in an eschatological context, meaning a, a context about the end times and the return of Christ. It is the looking to the clouds and, and wondering if this could be the day. Why do we look forward to heaven this way? Because God is there. God is the one who makes heaven, heaven. Because Jesus is there. If you have been rescued by Jesus, we are blessed because we believe even though we don't see, but one day we will see him. Jesus defined eternal life in John 17, 3 as knowing God and the one he, whom he has set. And so we long for heaven because he is there. But listen, waiting is hard. I'm not by nature a patient person. I don't like waiting. And yet waiting on the Lord, waiting on God is a theme that is all through the Bible. I believe it's a lost art. I would define waiting on God this way. Truth, excuse me, trust multiplied by time. When you read the Bible and you discover those who had to wait on the Lord those who encourage us to wait on the Lord, or even in this text, we wait for the Lord Jesus. It doesn't mean sitting around doing nothing, twiddling your thumbs, being idle. Waiting on the Lord means trusting Him. And, and what does it mean to trust the Lord? Believe what He says and do what He says. And waiting on the Lord means doing that 
today and tomorrow and the next day. Trust in him. Believe what he says, do what he says, and multiply that by time. And this is really challenging when our circumstances aren't changing. And in this present life, we are waiting on Jesus' return in a world that's not changing. It's not getting better. It's under the curse of God and, and will be until God sets it right. And, and you are in a mixed condition, Christian, where you still deal with the residual effects of your own sin. There's an internal fight. We long for the fight to be done. We long for Jesus to be vindicated in the world and in our own hearts. And so we wait on Him. But it is not a waiting where we just sit around. This word for waiting is this eager anticipation. My dad lived by this eager anticipation. Anytime we were outside and, and clouds would start to form on the horizon of the Texas sky and the clouds would get bigger and bigger, he'd look up into the clouds and he said, Jesus is coming back on the clouds. You think it could be today? And that eager anticipation was contagious. He thought about it regularly. We ought to look for Christ in that way. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 12. Lest you think for a moment that waiting on Jesus, waiting on His return is just sort of a sitting around hunker down, isolate from the world, and, and wait. In Luke 12, beginning in verse 35, Jesus tells three stories about waiting for His return. The first is a story of slaves awaiting their master's return. The second story is the story of a homeowner anticipating a, a burglar breaking into his home. And the third story is a steward or a house manager awaiting the master's reward. Look at the first story in verse 35. Jesus says, Gird up your loins and keep your lamps lit and be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? It means to be busy about his business while he's gone so that when he returns, he finds you busy about his business. Look at the second story, beginning in verse 39, the, the homeowner. Be sure of this, if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, burglars don't usually inform the home, homeowners what time they're coming. You don't get a text message that says, planning to burgle at 2.30 a.m., be ready. Now, the idea here is that Jesus' return is unknown to us. The timing is unexpected, so be ready. And the third story is the story of the steward, the, the manager, the one in charge of the master's possessions, 
And it begins in verse 41, and Peter's asking the question, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? Who are you talking to, Jesus? And you notice here Jesus answers the question the way he typically does. He doesn't answer the question the way it's being asked. He answers the question that should have been asked. Peter should have said, Lord, tell me how to be faithful. Instead, Peter says, who are you talking to? Here's Jesus' answer. Who then is the faithful and prudent steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if the slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many beatings. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a beating will receive few. From everyone that has been given much, much will be expected. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more." What's startling about this story, this third story, is that by the end of the story, Jesus moves out of narrative fiction parable into reality, the reality of future history when he will judge. The story got very serious at the end. Slaves who are unfaithful with the things that God has entrusted to them will find themselves cast out with unbelievers, cut in pieces, tormented forever in the lake of fire. The story took a, a dark turn, and what we discover there is that everyone will be accountable for what they do with God's stuff in this life, with God's time, with the relationships that He gives, with the opportunities. Are you ready for His return? What does it mean to wait for Jesus? It means to be about his business. It means to be ready at any moment for him to return. And it means to be a faithful steward with what he has given you. And notice Paul in Philippians 3 says, We eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't skip over these titles. Each is important. He is first called the Lord. That just means he's in charge. He's the Lord of the universe, He's the Lord of all things, and He is also Lord of my life. He's in charge of my heart, and He is called Jesus, that is, Jesus the man, the, the baby born at Bethlehem, the son of Mary, and as was supposed, the son of Joseph. He's the one that lived on the earth and, and walked around amongst us, and He is the Christ and you know, Christ is not his last name. It is his title. It means Messiah. He's the anointed one, the expected one, the promised one. He is the answer to the enigma of life. He is the Word of God in flesh that the Old Testament looked forward to. And that is the one we are waiting for. How do we eagerly await his return? Anticipation, obedience, longing, faith. I think Paul lived in this tension. Look back at Philippians chapter 1. 
in verse 21, Paul says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I don't know what I will choose. Now, God is the author of life and death. Nobody really gets to choose to live or to die. But Paul is expressing this tension. Would I rather go home and be with Jesus in heaven, or would I rather remain and live faithfully for him here? He says in verse 23, I am hard-pressed between the two having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for the progress of your faith. How do you cultivate this tension, a, a longing for heaven? How do, you, how do you remind yourself regularly that heaven is home? I like John Calvin's advice. In his institutes, he has an essay entitled Meditations on the Future Life. And the way he decided to remember that heaven is home was to think in two categories, good days and bad days. On good days, remember that God is the giver of good gifts. You eat a delightful meal, you spend time with sweet friends, you enjoy some recreation, you benefit from the sunshine or the rain. In Arizona, we think the rain is a good gift from God. Here, I think maybe the sunshine feels more like the good gift from God. And in any of those moments, you just think, wow, God is the giver of all good gifts. And John Calvin encouraged his readers to think of those as an appetizer for what is to come, a preview because God who gives good gifts gives out of his nature, and his nature doesn't change in eternity. He just gives and gives and gives and gives. So any good thing you enjoy in this life in God's common grace gifts or special grace gifts are a preminder of what is to come. Allow God's gifts, good gifts to pre-mind you of heaven and your citizenship. Conversely, on the bad days, what are you to think of, according to Calvin? Maybe a prolonged sickness, maybe the grief of loss, maybe a, a chronic illness you know you will never recover from in this life. All of those things are to remind you that this is not home. You belong to another realm. And the listlessness and restlessness that we feel, the, maybe the indescribable angst of things aren't right here, we should feel that. Because our home is heaven. Are you homesick for your permanent residence? Listen, this perspective ought to change the way you eat your cornflakes and tie your shoes and go meet your friends and choose a spouse and pursue a career. All of these activities of our earthly life must be flavored by this homesickness for your permanent residence. There's a third reminder for us to provoke this homesickness that ought to radically affect our lives. And it is found in verse 21. We will be changed. We belong to heaven. We wait for Jesus. And thirdly, we will be changed. Look what Paul says in verse 21. The Lord Jesus Christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory 
by His working through which He is able to subject all things to Himself. Jesus will change us. He describes here our body of humiliation, our humble state. If you're young and in your physical prime, you may not think about a body of humiliation, but you will soon enough. You'll feel the decline. And that physical decline is a reminder that this isn't home. Your current physical existence was not built for eternity. It's not qualified for eternity. And then we also feel the plague of sin. The the hangover of our depravity. The internal war. The mixed condition. And listen, your home country is not a place you can enter in your present condition. You must actually be radically transformed. And and frankly, two transformations must happen for any sinner to be qualified to enter heaven. The first is gospel transformation. And the second is a bodily transformation to make you physically fit for your permanent residence. When I was a kid... I had an ant farm. I don't know if you've had an ant farm. It's a two pieces of plexiglass in a plastic box, and in between those pieces of plexiglass is a bunch of sand. And you had to mail order for the ants, and the ants came in what looked like half of a tennis ball can. And I had to dump the ants into the ant farm, and I'm sure my mom just hoped they wouldn't get out. And I was intrigued by these ants. I mean, they're they're really marvelous creatures. They build their intricate little tunnels, a a lair here and a tunnel there, and they this way and that way, and they store their food in one place, and they work together. It's really remarkable to watch. Colony of ants works as a unit together, and, and you just get to see that between the plexiglass walls. And I was very fastidious I cared about these ants. I I had an eyedropper with water, and I would very carefully bring the eyedropper in and and lovingly dispense a drop of water, and the ants would come up and get the water and take it into their little mouths and then disperse it to the other ants inside the tunnels. And I gave them Special K cereal. Apparently, they loved Special K. And these giant Special K flakes I would put into the ant farm, and the ants who were very outsized by these cereal flakes, would take them on their backs and carry them around and break them apart and get them in the tunnels and feed the other ants. I was dismayed the first time I saw an ant belly up on the surface of the sand. What has happened? Can you imagine if in inspecting your ant farm, you, you saw more than one dead ant? An an ant's antenna is sort of bent and and another ant's leg is snapped off and you're wondering, what what is happening to these ants? They're they're going crazy. And and dead ants pile up and and if only you could have some sort of security camera system, closed circuit TV, you could look in on what's going on here and, and you discover that these ants are fighting with each other. There is murder in the ant colony. And ants have taken it upon themselves to decimate the colony. They, they bite and devour one another and, and they all just end up belly up on the, on the surface. 
torn and broken. And, and you look down at this ant farm and you begin to, to speak to the ants. Say, hey, ants, straighten up. Stop doing this. You're hurting each other. Can't you just get along? Maybe they need more water. Maybe they need more special K. What can I do? And they're, they're not understanding the corrections that I'm giving. And I speak to them in compassion and love and authority of the ant farm owner. If only I could do something. What if I could go down there? Maybe be their size and walk through their tunnels and speak ant with them. Maybe take on an ant uniform and, and then they would understand. I could, I could tell them how to live and help them solve their problems. And, and, and then the ants just treat the intruder like an enemy. Snap off his antenna, tear off his legs, and, and leave his body belly up on the sand. You're catching where I'm going with this. It's a, it's a, it's a silly illustration. But have you thought about what it meant for the God of the universe to take on human flesh and dwell among us? And speak with us and, and teach us and, and model for us what it looked like to live a life of faith in God. Only to be murdered by us. See, the human condition is so awful, so sin-sick and twisted that we would murder God the first chance we get. And we did. And of course, this was God's plan all along, to take on flesh and dwell amongst us, to, to be a servant of many and to lay his life down for his sheep. And when Jesus came, he came to die. The King of Kings subjected to shame and ignominy. You, do you remember Matthew 25? Jesus is surrounded by the whole Roman cohort and they stripped him of his clothes and, and they beat him and they scourged him and they put the crown of thorns on his head and they, they put a scepter in his hand and they mocked him and they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they beat him on the head with the scepter, driving those thorns into his scalp. And then they led him away to be crucified. Oh, what will those Roman soldiers do when they see him again? And that's every one of us in our sin, in our rebellion against God, by our, by our own nature. And when he came to die, he came to bear our sins in his body on that cross so that he might actually take the wrath of God against our sin in himself to bring us to God, that we might be forgiven to purchase our citizenship to begin this transformation we so desperately need. It truly is stunning. We need gospel transformation to get in. This text points us to another level of transformation that we need in order to qualify for a physical, eternal existence in a new heavens and new earth. Look down at verse 21. Jesus will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. 
You see, your home country is not a realm you can enter in your present state. You can't get in with this body. And you may be absent from the body and present with the Lord for a time, but God has designed your eternal existence at home to be the integration of your inner man, your soul, who you really are, with a physical body prepared for eternity in His glory. And Jesus is going to bring this about. Listen to the way this body is described. In fact, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 15. A familiar text that gives us the contrast. In verse 42, Paul describes this transformation. He calls it the resurrection of the dead. And in farming terms, he describes sowing seeds into the ground. He said the body is sown corruptible and is raised incorruptible. Right now, you have a physical body that is subject to decay, to corruption. It's falling apart. started falling apart the day you were born. And you will inherit a physicality that cannot fall apart. It is incorruptible. And you think about the seed of a plant, the the. the Orange tree seed, the clementine orange seed does not look like the tree, nor does it look like the fruit. But the clementine orange seed goes with the orange somehow. The seed goes into the ground. It looks like it does. It's corruptible. It dies. It falls apart. But what comes out of the ground is glorious in comparison. It's a remarkable picture. Verse 43 The body is sown in dishonor and is raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power. You think about your life on this earth. And when you breathe your last, you will be at your weakest and most dishonorable. And the next phase bodily for you will be a raising in glory and in power. Verse 44, it is sown natural and it is raised supernatural. By Paul saying it's raised a spiritual body, he doesn't mean some sort of ethereal, ghost-like, wispy cloud thing that has no substance. A spiritual body means a body that transcends the kind of body we experience here. A contrast to natural is probably something more like supernatural. Look down at verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The corruptible cannot inherit the incorruptible. A transformation is required. That transformation happens at the resurrection rapture event that 1 Corinthians 15 talks about. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. The dead in Christ raised first, and those who remain and are alive will instantly be transformed. We have a lot to look forward to. How will Jesus bring about such a transformation? It's not something you could do. This requires supernatural power. Look at the power involved in verse 21. By His working, through which He is able to subject all things to Himself. We know that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord to the glory of the God the Father. 
What does it take for every wicked, rebellious knee to bow? For even demonic and satanic tongues to confess and agree that Jesus is Lord? That's some kind of power. That's the power that Jesus says he will enlist to transform the body of our humiliation and bring it in conformity with his glorious body. The day when he will be vindicated, the day when we will be transformed. This reality, these reminders have to change the way we live. Change the way you go about your mundane business. Change the way you eat your cornflakes and pour your coffee and tie your shoes and go to work and go to school and meet your friends. Changes the priorities you have for choosing a spouse, picking in a career, or the way you want to retire. All of these things are governed by the reality that you belong to a place you've never been. That is your home. That is your citizenship. There have been a number of events in my life that have made me look up in eager anticipation. I was a college student, and I had the opportunity to host and spend some time with a sort of a personal hero of mine that I'd never met. He was a Christian singer, and he sang songs that made me think of heaven. Uh, One of the lines in one of his songs says, the stuff of earth competes for the allegiance I owe only to the giver of all good things. He also said, I will call this land America, I'll call this land my country, but it is not my home. Those were good words for me. He he sang theology for me that made my heart long for heaven, made me think about it more than I was. And I had the opportunity to uh, attend a symposium for musicians that he was hosting. We were going to get to play music together. And then a friend had arranged an opportunity for me to give him kind of a scenic tour of the Appalachian Mountains. I was so excited. I'm, I'm going to meet him in person and, and we're going to spend time together. And that was the week he was in a car accident and killed. I didn't get to meet him. And so I didn't feel the personal grief of loss of someone I knew personally. I felt something strange. I felt envy. He had taught me to sing about heaven. He had taught me to think about heaven during my earthly existence. And now he was there with the Jesus he had sung about. And I thought, I want to be there. In 2001, my wife's mom died after a long battle with cancer. She loved the Lord. We got to sing with her her last songs and and pray with her the last times and hold her hand in her last moments. And, And there was a moment where she was there in her body and then there was the next moment she was not there. A body remained, but she was absent from the body and present with the Lord and that was better by far for her. Difficult for us. And though we have longed for her to be back and enjoy the things we're enjoying with us, we, we love the memories of Mary Jane. My wife has longed to call her, even picked up the phone at times, thinking she could. We miss her. 
but she doesn't want to be back here. She's at home, and she's with Christ. And the same sensation happened for me in the moment that she breathed her last. I want to be where she is. It was September of 2012, and my dad was killed in a plane crash. It was sudden. It was unexpected. He was to preach that Sunday from the book of Revelation, from the throne room of Christ, where Christ is worshipped by the four living beings and the 24 elders and the myriads and myriads of angels and the uncountable number of the redeemed and concentric circles around the Lamb, all singing, all rejoicing. He was going to preach on that to the college students at church. He was also that Sunday afternoon going to preach a topical sermon on heaven to the retirement community that he preached to on Sunday afternoons. So he had two messages all about going home. He was killed on a Saturday, Sunday morning. I sat at his desk and I read those two sermons he would have preached that day. And, and he didn't get to preach them. He, he got to see them. I miss my dad. A year prior, my dad and I had both preached his dad's memorial service. And we said to each other afterwards, if, if you preach my funeral or if I preach yours, make sure you tell them he got everything he wanted. He's with Christ. I got to say that at my dad's memorial service. When Paul described his own death in 2 Timothy 4.18, he described it as going safely home. A plane crash and a long battle with cancer and a car accident. Those aren't the things we use to describe the word safety. And I don't think Paul would say having his head lopped off by Nero, church tradition says that's the way Paul went home. Being killed by the emperor doesn't sound safe. And yet that is the reality. For a believer, no matter how you go out of this life, you go safely home. Listen, this changes everything. This changes every suffering into a reminder that this world is not our home. And it transforms every good gift, not as something to be taken for granted and to worship the created thing rather than the creator. It is for us believers a preminder of good things to come. So enjoy them, but not as the end in themselves but as the pointer to our good God. I want to turn your attention back to Luke. I read to you three stories from Luke 12. And I intentionally read quickly through the first story. I kind of didn't want you to notice something in there yet. But I want to look back at it now. In verse 37, Jesus says, Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will gird himself to serve, and he will have them, his slaves, recline at the table, and he will come up and wait on them. 
you ever seen this in your Bible before? If it weren't here in print, how, how could we believe such a thing? That the God of the universe seeks to reward his slaves who deserve nothing and in and of themselves only lived their lives to provoke his fury against their sin, he not only forgives their sin, makes them citizens of heaven, but promises in heaven to seat them at the table and to serve them. This is our God. It means that God is a giver of good gifts to those who don't deserve it. This is grace upon grace upon grace, and His character doesn't change when you get home. The God who has given and given and given again to you in the Christian life is a God who will give and give and give and give of Himself to infinitely increasing joy to you forever. Christian, your story is too good to be true. And I pray that this provokes a homesickness for you, for your permanent residence. Let's pray. God, you are good and great and glorious. And to know you is the definition of eternal life. And when we think about who we are and who you are, we don't deserve any of this. Our, our words about your goodness are trite and small and so inadequate. Our songs to you are these feeble attempts to express our love and our gratitude. And we look forward to that day when we will be well equipped with no mixing of heart motives with no taint of sin, with the battle over, and we will love you as you deserve. Without reservation, without taint, without sin, without selfishness, but totally abandoned in adoration of you. We long for that day. Come, Lord Jesus.